had told Ward just take time, and uh, I don't think he understood what I meant by that. Um, also, uh, would like to say how happy we are to be back at, at Brentwood Hills. Been looking forward to it, <clears throat> and uh, hope your prayers will continue in the in the service. Uh, secondly, I, uh, I sat there during song service and I had two subjects on my mind <clears throat> and there's, there's some, um, common aspects of both that, that sort of flow together, but there's all, there's also a pretty distinct uniqueness in both. And I just sat there and prayed, uh, that the Lord would direct my mind. And then, uh, Ward got up and went to Ezra nine and eight. And so I said, all right. <laughs> um, so if this goes south, we know who to blame. No. <laughs> but yes. Do I? So I do covet your prayers <clears throat> um, with the thoughts that are in my mind that they would uh, become unjumbled and be laid out in a way that would be uh, first and foremost glorifying the our Heavenly Father, but for the reason that we're here, that we might be edified, uh, which means to be lifted up, to be uh, encouraged, to be revived, uh, like uh, Ezra said and Ward preached about. Um, so let me just give a couple of opening remarks. Number one, revival. So I think we could probably all, you hear the word revival, and I think we probably all or most of us come to conclusion of, of what we see as revival, right? Big tent, big tent set up, you know, and the people coming out and the preacher, you know, uh, browbeating everybody into joining the church, basically. Uh, that's not what revival is. <clears throat> and Ezra pretty much clarifies it. No, it doesn't pretty much. Ezra clarifies it in the verse that uh, Brother Ward were. Where, uh, where he was. Revival starts here. All right? So revival needs to start with me. I need to be revived. Um, but when revival starts with me, and by God's grace, I'm revived then it, while it's starting with me, it's starting with you. And then what happens is we have this wonderful, contagious aspect of revival. And so I'm revived, you're revived, and then that turns into we are revived. And then that's that revival. And it's, it's completely in line with what Jesus Christ said about the church. Um, ye are the light of the world, uh, a city which is set on a hill which cannot be hid. Uh, then he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So Jesus Christ talked about a light that's from within and that individually, we let our, we're supposed to let our light shine through faith and others see that light. Now that doesn't mean we, you know, 
It's not like Christ when he says, and if I be lifted up, I shall draw all men unto me. That's not what he's saying. Uh, and he's not saying, you know, let your light shine and then go pick up a baseball bat, start knocking people in the head, right? <clears throat> what he's saying is we have a singular responsibility in our life in this world that has a direct impact on others. And it's very simple. Simple. Let your light so shine. So, and I air quote simple because while it's simple in, in word, a lot of times it's not very simple. A lot of times I don't feel revived. I don't feel revived. And when I don't feel revived, I'll, I'll just confess to you, I struggle to let my light shine. So we have to be given the spirit of revival individually that it might be spread collectively and then our individual light that shines turns into a collective light, and that turns into a city which is set on a, upon a hill that cannot be hid. Cannot be hid. So, Ezra says, and now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord. Not a little grace, but in this short span of time, God's grace has been made prevalent among us. Certainly it had to be for the job that was that they had set before them in rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah talks about rebuilding the walls and reestablishing the gate. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. But Ezra says, grace has been given for this. And now, let, uh, now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in this holy place. Lord thought about Isaiah 22, which is fantastic. I thought about Isaiah 33, uh, verse 20. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation. It's a quiet, peaceful place. A tabernacle which shall not be taken down. Um not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. So you think of a nail in this place. It's like, and I think Brother Ward even referred to a stake driven into the ground. Um, the, these stakes that are driven into the ground, these fundamental foundational principles of the church of Jesus Christ have been driven into, into the ground and they cannot be pulled up. They cannot be pulled up. Moreover, the cords that are attached to the stake that lead up to the tabernacle, they cannot be broken. It is an impossible feat to do anything to pull up not even one stake nor break any of the cords of the church of Jesus Christ. And that's because the stakes are driven into the foundation that is none other than Jesus Christ, right? To give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes, enlighten, let your light so shine, and give us a little reviving in our bondage. So it's funny how he chose the word a little reviving. It's almost as if there's an aspect of I don't want to ask for too much. Because if I ask for too much, I might not get anything, a little reviving. 
And I think that there's an aspect of for the same little space that grace is giving, given is the same little reviving that he's talking about at the end of that verse. Now, go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus Christ has a conversation with just the 12. (coughs) And he says, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And the disciples, they pop up and say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say that you're one of the prophets. So they answered his question. I think they answered it fairly. They answered it truthfully, right? So then he says, all right, so that's what men say. Now he says, but whom do ye say that I am? And then Peter, blessed, I believe, by God, with a clear understanding in that moment of who Jesus Christ is, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's the same Peter who, not long before and not long after, opened mouth and inserted foot. I mean, that's... You know, we, we look at Peter, and here's a great thing to think about. Look at Peter with yourself in mind, because I do that, and I'm like, I, I am perfect. I'm a perfect fit. The Lord will bless me on the mountaintop to, to see and understand, and then the next thing I say is, well, the Lord can't do that. I mean, that's Peter to a T, right? Peter's a great example. In fact, Peter was the other subject. So I need to stay away from Peter except for this here. But let me say this. Peter's a wonderful example of, well, Peter's a wonderful example of revival, first and foremost. But he's a wonderful example of somebody with enthusiasm for the Lord and for his church. But also he's an example of, of us who also have this enthusiasm for the Lord and his church. Yet sometimes... I just don't say the right thing, and I don't think the right thing, and I don't do the right thing, just like Peter. And just like Peter, I get chastised for it by my my and your Heavenly Father. So Peter's a great example of of me. Um, So anyway, he says, um, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus Christ says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. So he tells Peter, You're a blessed man in the right here and the right now. Right? Uh, this A little grace has been given you, Peter. Because God revealed to you just exactly who I am. I am the Savior. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the living God. That's You are 100% right, Peter. But it didn't come from you. That came from revelation from my Heavenly Father. And because it was revealed to you, Peter, you are a blessed man. You're a blessed individual because God revealed it to you. Then Jesus Christ says, and I say unto thee, thou art Peter. 
And upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No stake pulled up, no cord broken. But isn't that interesting how he says upon this rock? I know that verse gets misconstrued sometimes. Well, he's telling Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. Scripture will not uphold that premise. It won't do it. Scripture is clear that Christ is the foundation. Christ is the chief of the corner. Christ is the building. And that's the church. So what does he mean? Upon this rock will I build my church. So first off, he calls him out. Peter, you're nothing but a man. You're nothing but a man. You don't know this by any action of yourself, but you know this because God revealed it to you. And it's on that premise, upon that rock, that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what is he saying? This is a church that I build and it's not built on you. It's not built by you. But it's built on the realization that those who live their lives in the church are blessed to have revealed unto them that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's what the church is built on. And that's what it resides on even to this day. Our inability to add or take away anything from the church is proof of that very statement, no matter how hard we might think it needs to change or how hard we might try to change it, it is unchangeable in its essence and in its build because its builder is perfect. So I appreciate it. Ward said it this morning. I appreciate when when ministers are blessed to say, There's nothing to be added to the church of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing to be taken away. He drove the stakes into the ground. We don't don't have the right to say that stake needs to move over a foot. Or that stake needs to come back because that cord's not exact. It's not as tight as I think it should be. No. Jesus Christ built his church. And he built it in the way that the will of God would have it to be built. And he tells Peter, you're blessed because it's been revealed unto you. All right. (coughs) That was a long introductory point, right? But it is nonetheless. So, we have the church. We have the city that's set on a hill. The apostle Paul writes to the young minister Timothy in the third chapter of first Timothy beginning in the 14th verse, he says, these things write unto thee that thou mayest all thou may all know how to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So Paul says, Timothy, I'm writing you, these things to you, that your conversation, your life, your lifestyle, everything you do and say, everything you act upon might be in, um, that might be found in the very scriptural premise of Jesus Christ establishing his church as the pillar and ground of the truth. So then later on in the sixth chapter of first Timothy, 
the apostle Peter says, I think in the second to last verse, he says, commit, commit that which, I'm sorry, keep that which is committed unto thy trust and avoid profane uh, babblings and the opposition of sciences falsely so-called. So he concludes that same letter with, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. That didn't come from you, Peter. It came from God. Paul says, keep that, the exact same thing that Peter was a recipient of, the very revelation that Jesus is the Christ, keep that which is committed under thy trust. Keep that which is committed under thy trust. Paul, earlier on, I think it's earlier on in that same uh, book, he says that which is committed to his trust. So he's committed to the apostle Paul. Paul says, Timothy has been committed to you. You see what's happening here? It's the perpetuity of the church of Jesus Christ. What was committed to Paul and Timothy, brothers and sisters, I submit to you that it's been committed to you as well. You are the church. You're the church. Not the building, right? Not the building. Now, don't get me wrong. Especially right now, I like air conditioning, all right? I like the comfort that we have uh, when we assemble as the church in a building such as this or wherever we might be. But you know and I know that that is not the church. Tear this building down. And if the saints come and assemble right here where there is no building, the church is still meeting at this very address in Fort Worth, Texas. Fort Worth? Thank you. I get confused in in the mid-cities. But this is the church. And it's the church based on the revelation of Jesus Christ to you that's now been committed to our trust. So where does that leave us? How important is that? So... Most of the time, we go to church on Sunday, we go home. Whether we're going to church, you know, there at home at Snyder, whether we're coming here, whether we're going to Dallas, wherever we go to church, we come home. The church disbanding for the services that day does not disband the church. The church is still there. Why? Because you are the church. You are his building. The apostle Paul affirms that in Ephesians chapter 1. The apostle Peter affirms that in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are his building. And you are the church. Even when we leave here, you're still the church. Now you you haven't you're not congregated together anymore. You haven't you're not assembled anymore. But you're still the church. You're still the light of the world. You're still a city set upon a hill. And you still have committed to you the very truths of Jesus Christ that God has revealed to you through his holy word and has committed unto our trust. I should stop saying you and start using ours because it's me too, I I pray. That's been committed to our trust regardless of whether we're assembled or not. Now, that doesn't excuse us from assembly, right? Right? 
The Apostle Paul in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews says that there were some to not be like others that were forsaking the assembling of themselves together. That's not what we should do. What we should do is every time we have an opportunity, assemble ourselves together as the collective ecclesia, the called out of God in this world as a church. The psalmist David says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. It didn't matter how often it was. Every time he said, when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord and worship, David said, I was glad. I was glad. I'm telling you what, if we ever end up in a shape where we're not glad to go to the house of God to worship, that's a sad shape of unrevival. Because God has committed this to our trust. I've got to hurry. He's committed it to our trust and he's revealed it to us by his word. What a blessed people we are. What a blessed people we are. And we don't say that with rudeness or arrogance. We shouldn't say that in that capacity. But in humility, oftentimes I think I'm, I'm sorry. I asked the question, why me? Why am I blessed to be a part of the greatest people that have ever trodden in this low ground of sin and sorrow? Why am I? Why have I been blessed? And the only thing is that a little grace has been given me. <laughs> a little grace has been given me. That I might go in and out, as Solomon says, with wisdom to go in and out of so great a people. A little grace has been given, Brother Ward, to each of us. We think and realize by our nature there is no deserving bone in our body to be given what we've been given. But by his grace and by his revelation, he's committed something so Precious to him. You think the church is precious to the Lord? Oh, you better believe it is. You can go to the Song of Solomon's Song of Solomon and read just how precious the church is to the Lord. But his desire is to see his bride. His desire is to hear the voice. He said, You have the voice of the turtle. You have the voice of a dove. In another place, he says, you have the eyes of a dove. In another place, he says, I want to see your face. Let me see thy countenance and let me hear thy voice. You think the Lord's pleased when you raise your voice up in singing of praises to his name. You better believe he's pleased with that. He's hearing the voice of his bride. You think the Lord is pleased when... You come and assemble yourselves together as the church of Jesus Christ. You better believe he's pleased. He's happy to see your face, the face of his bride. If you want a really good example of just how much so, go read the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 9 when Saul of Tarsus was doing his best, though an impossible feat he undertook, To destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Christ long suffered to that very point. 
And then it's like Jesus Christ said, okay, I've had enough of this. <laughs> I've had enough of this. And he struck down on the road to Damascus with letters, with authority and letters of arrest in his coat pocket. And he strikes him down and he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And one would think, well, we read about how he persecuted Stephen. We read about how he persecuted the church and other places. But we don't read anything about anything that Saul of Tarsus ever said directly related to the name of Jesus Christ. So that tells me this. That the Lord Jesus Christ himself, because of his um his intertwined bond, a threefold cord with his beloved bride, that his bride was being persecuted. Therefore, Jesus Christ said, because you're persecuting my bride, you're persecuting me. And I've got a question for you, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? This wasn't for Jesus to figure out what the mind of Saul was. He already knew. And more importantly, when he struck him down, he knew of another mind that had been put in Saul of Tarsus. Saul says, who art thou, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. I believe, and you might see this differently, I believe the Lord's saying, why don't you reach out now and do some kicking and see how it feels? Because I just performed a work in you. You say, Saul didn't deserve such a blessed, uh, that a little grace given to him. You're right, he didn't deserve it by his nature. But you know what? I didn't deserve it either. None of us deserved it. But because God so loved the world, because God chose us in his son before the foundation of the world... Jesus Christ comes and he operates on that man, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul, I believe, was, excuse me for this, I believe he was arrogant. I believe he thought he was the smartest man on the face of the planet. I believe he thought that by virtue of his actions and his works, he was a, a, a total keeper of the law. And in my opinion, one sorry individual. And then the Lord got a hold of him. And he went from pomp, pompous arrogance to, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I'm telling you, when the Lord gets involved with those that would buffet his church, I submit to you that the Lord takes care of those very things. In fact, the Apostle Paul told the church at Thessalonica, he didn't say go out and battle them. He didn't say go out and do this or that to him, but he said to you who are troubled, rest with us. Rest with us. It's almost as if the apostle Paul was telling that church, I know what they're doing to you in this wicked and vile city. I know what they're saying about you. I know the condemnation they're heaping on you, but I'm telling you, you don't go out and do battle with them. You come on in and you rest with us. He says, and let the Lord take vengeance on those that condemn his people and his church. What will thou have me to do? Go on into the city, Saul. He says, you're already heading there. 
just keep on going to a street called Straight, and there'll be a man named Ananias. And I've sent him, and he'll take care of you. And then the Lord appears to Ananias. And I'm like Ananias, just like I'm like Peter. I couldn't imagine being in Ananias' shoes. And here comes a vision. The Lord said, Ananias, I'm sending Saul to you. I'd be just like Ananias. I, don't, I, I, won't, I won't turn to it, and, but I'll give you. It's like Ananias said, are you sure about this? Are you? I've heard of this fella, and he's not a nice guy. The Lord said, Behold, he prayed. <laughs> that broken man, Saul of Tarsus, blinded by the glory of Jesus Christ, was being led into the city, blind by the men that was with him. And as he was being led, he prayed. Oh, I believe in a little grace given. Behold, he prayeth. Ananias, he's a chosen vessel. And I like how the Lord spoke to Ananias. It gives me hope that when I say, are you sure? That the Lord, he says, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure, Ananias. He's a chosen vessel unto me. He's going to suffer great things for my name's sake. He's going to be a preacher unto the Gentiles. And then the communion between two church members happens on the street called Straight. And Ananias came to him and he says, The Lord hath appeared unto me. And then he says, Brother Saul, rise up and be baptized. Brother Saul, he said. Brother Saul. Oh, there was a communion between Ananias and Saul there in a City called Damascus that night. What a wonderful experience that happened there. Let me tell you, that's the experience that you and I have in the house of God. That we call one another brother or sister. We share a common bond in the house of the Lord. In the church of Jesus Christ, we have that experience even when we uh, become rebellious like Israel did. Even when it might seem like the Lord, uh, his mercies have clean gone forever. Rest assured that if they haven't clean gone forever, oh, we might be in our own form of captivity like Israel was with Babylon. Um, I trust it won't be 70 years. If it is, I'm out of luck. I, I, I don't have anything left. No, it might be for... 70 minutes, or it might be for 70, whatever the case is. But know this, that the Lord always returns his face to look upon his people. The Lord always looks upon his bride. And when, when we stray off, the Lord always goes out and reaches and brings us back in to the fold. Does he not leave the 99 and go after the one that's gone away? Seems like economically speaking, that's not the right thing to do. Your investment's in the 99. That one's on its own. No, not my Lord. Not my Lord. His investment's not just in the 99. His investment's in the 100. In everyone. Everyone. What a, uh, a joyous understanding that we have in the house 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he blesses us to see his face and to hear his voice and to bear uh, 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 with our eye of faith his countenance. And to reach out and take hold of him like Mary did on the morning of the resurrection. Or like uh, Ruth did to Naomi when they uh, Naomi kept telling her to leave and go back to her people. And Naomi said, I'm sorry, Ruth said, I won't do it. Uh, I'm going to stick with you, Naomi, whether you like it or not. Well, I'm telling you what. We uh, are blessed uh, from time to time to reach out and take hold uh, of our risen Savior Uh, like Mary did. We're blessed to reach out from time to time when it seems like all odds are against us in what we do and what we say. But when we reach out and say, uh, where you go, I'm going. Where you stay, I'm staying. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. That's how I feel about the house of God, the church of Jesus Christ that we have today. Brothers and sisters, we are each other's people. And we ought to be formed in our minds through uh, a little grace. And in that revival, we ought to be formed in our minds that wherever they go, I'm going to go. <laughs> and you, you, you might, it might, might be like, uh, my, my examples are, they can just be goofy. <laughs> but it might be like, a, like an old abandoned puppy dog. And you say, go on. I don't want anything to do with you. But that dog hadn't got anybody else. And so what does that dog do? It just keeps coming back, keeps coming back. Keeps coming back. I feel like that way sometimes. I just keep coming back. And, and somebody might say, no, you know, no, I'm just going to keep coming back. Why? Because there ain't nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else. There's nothing in this world for us. There's nothing. Oh, don't get, you know me. I don't get me wrong. I have a secular job. I mean, we have responsibility to our families to, to work. And I, so don't get me wrong. <coughs> but I'm telling you what. When the end of my work day comes, I'm done. I don't want to fool with it anymore there's nothing in Washington D.C. for me I don't care I don't care there's nothing there for me there's nothing in Austin, Texas for me I don't care I love I love I love going places like Montana Brother Jeff beautiful Colorado beautiful the Emerald Water of of Florida Gulf Beach, beautiful. Yeah, I'm going to go again, Lord willing. But at the end of the day, that's that's not where I want to be. Songwriter takes Ruth's words. And writes, people of the living God, I have sought the world around. Paths of sin and sorrow trod. Peace and comfort nowhere found. There's no peace and comfort to be had out here. There's not. I, if I'm busting your bubble, I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm not. Okay. 
There's nothing to be had out here. I want to be in the place where my best friends and my kindred dwell, where God, my Savior, reigns. That's where I want to be. And I may not act like it all the time. I know I don't act like it all the time. And shame on me. Oh, but when I'm drawn in, when there's a little grace given me, and there's a revival in me, get out of my way. I'm coming in the door because this is the place that I want to be. Why? Why? Think about it this way. <clears throat> oh, there's work to be done. <laughs> I'll, I'm not even going to go there. But there's work. Go read Colossians chapter 3. There's work to be done. And when I say that, I'm talking about there's work for me to do on me. And there's work for you to do on you. This is something that's been, we've been entrusted with. How many times have we got caught up? How many times have we gotten caught up in that which we've been entrusted with and turned to our fleshly nature and said and done things that are contrary to to that which we've been entrusted with. You say, Brother Mark, you've quit preaching and gone to meddling. Well, I'm meddling with me. I'm meddling with me. <clears throat> I've got some good old Irish blood in me, and by the way, your pastor does too. I can get angry. I can get mad. I know I've said things. To those who are of the household of faith that I ought not to have said. And I bear shame for that. And I pray God's grace every day that I'll never do it again. Will I? I don't know. If his grace is on me, I won't. But if I move away from his grace, I will. Now, this is how important the church of Jesus Christ is. Now, let me give you something that I believe Paul bears out in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, the apostle Paul gives two mountains. One's Sinai and one is Zion. Um, and he talks about Sinai. He talks about it... <laughs> It's dark. It burned. Um, if you touch, if the animal touched it, they were, they were killed. Even to the point where it says that Moses says, I exceeding fear and tremble. Uh, we talk, well, anyway, I, I, I'll just keep, that's, that's, that's Sinai. And it's so bad that Moses said, I'm scared and, I, and I'm shaking like a leaf. He stood in the presence of God. You think, man, that's great, right? Moses says, I exceeding fear and tremble. We realize the august nature of the God who was riding on stone 
the commandments and giving Moses the law. Paul begins that by saying, you are not come to the mount that burns. Then a little bit later he says, but you are come. Verse 23, but ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. You know, the apostle Paul uses um, the same Jerusalem in the same context in Galatians chapter 4. He says, but Jerusalem which is above is free and is the mother of us all. Not Jerusalem over here in a nation called Israel, but Jerusalem which is above. Here he refers to it as heavenly Jerusalem. Dare I go to dare I go to Revelation 21? I'll go. It says, And I, John, saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven, first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city. I believe he says, New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. And I, behold, I heard, a, I, I'm sorry, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he'll wipe away all tears. All, there'll be no more sorrow, no more pain. Somebody says, Oh, that's, that's when we get to heaven. I thought we were going up to heaven. And he says it's coming down. And then he refers to something as a tabernacle, which is a temporary place of living or worship. No, he's talking about this spiritual aspect of the kingdom of God that comes down. It comes down from heaven. The apostle Peter says, if you do the things he talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, It says, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about if you do all these things, then you'll get to go to heaven. He's saying if you do all these things faithfully and a little grace is bestowed on you, an entrance will open up and you'll be blessed in this world, in the spiritual kingdom of God. That's why when we're out on our own, we're still the light of the world. We're still a city set on a hill. But when we come together and assemble ourselves in the, uh, in the church of Jesus Christ, it's not a guarantee. But if he gives a little grace, I keep going back to that word. That's beautiful. He gives a little grace. If he gives a little grace, he'll open the windows of heaven and new Jerusalem will come down. And then you know what happens? We go up above the cares and the trials and the sorrows of this world. For however long it might be, we might be blessed to enter in. It's like it. It's like Stephen when he was being stoned, and he looked up, and heaven opened up, and he says, "Behold, I see the 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 Son of uh, God standing on the right, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God." And I believe that he didn't feel the pains of those stones. I don't feel, believe he felt the hatred, uh, the vehement hatred of those people. I believe as soon as he saw him, he couldn't tear his eyes away from him. Brothers and sisters, when we see him in the 
experience of the heavenly Jerusalem here with us. When we, when we see him by faith in that experience, I can't tear my eyes away. And yet, here's another song. And still his visits seem too short or I too soon remove. And unfortunately for me, it's the latter. I too soon remove. Heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. You know what? how he started this? Ye are come. This is where we are. This is where we are. We're on Mount Zion. We're in the city of the living God. We're in heavenly Jerusalem. We're, uh, we're encompassed by an innumerable company of angels. You believe in angels? Boy, I do. <laughs> I do. I believe in uh, angels. I believe that God sends angels to us in our lives. He sent Gabriel, right, to Mary and Joseph and uh, uh, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. He sent an angel to give a message. You remember what? Oh, that clock. You remember what? Uh, you remember what Gabriel said to Mary when he said, "This is you're gonna, uh, you know, all this is gonna happen to you." And she, she, you know, and then she said, "How can this be, knowing I know no man?" Right before she says that, I love what Gabriel says about you're gonna have a son, and then he says, "And he shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Most High, and of his kingdom there shall be no end." I mean, what a message. What a wonderful opportunity for Gabriel being sent by God. You go down there to Mary and you tell her what's going to happen. And, and here's what you need to say to her. And there he is. This is how it's going to, he's going to, uh, he's going to be great. He shall be great. And then he tells her how it's going to happen, right? The Holy Ghost come upon thee, power of the highest overshadow thee. He tells Joseph the same thing. A little bit more succinct. <laughs> she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Oh, I believe in angels. I believe in angels. I believe, I believe our, God, our, our angel, the Lord says our angels are ever before his face. Well, now we're, we've come to an innumerable company of angels. Now, angels can't do what we do. Because angels weren't covenanted, weren't, weren't in the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world. So don't make sure that's clear. They can't do what we do. But there's scripture that says they can watch what we do. And there's scripture that says they desire to have what we have. <laughs> to the spirits of just men made perfect. I'll give you what I think this is. I think that's those that have gone on before us. You say, Brother Mark, I'm, I don't understand that. How can that be? I don't believe that people that are gone up to heaven are looking down, worried about what's happening. No, that's not what he's saying. And to the spirits of just men made perfect. That's the people that have died. That's your uh, kinfolk and my kinfolk. 
and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Heavenly Jerusalem, the general assembly, spirits of just men made perfect. If you go to Revelation chapter 5, time's up. If you go to Revelation chapter 5, you'll find how the vision that uh, John sees in chapter 5, which is about, you know, the book, the Lamb's book of life and the seven seals and all that and everything, and he wept. As you come down towards the end of that book, there's something taking place in heaven. What is it? Well, I got to get the last verse. Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> there's more that comes before this, talking about how the angels bowed down, how the elders bowed down, how there were uh, uh, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands in heaven itself bowing down before God on his throne and this great uh, lamb. In verse 14, it says, And the four beasts uh, said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. You know what's happening in heaven right now? People ain't looking down here hand-wringing because we're not doing what we ought to be doing. People are worshiping in heaven right now. Right now. That's what they're doing. Now, I can't, I can't understand or nor can I imagine what that worship must be like. But I believe it's, it's perfect singing. Because in fifth chapter, it says they were singing a new song. I believe it's perfect singing. I remember as a kid, I remember dad saying, you know, there's not going to be any preaching in heaven and made me want to shout when I was eight years old. <laughs> Hallelujah. No more preaching. <laughs> well, you know, the reason we don't, there'll be no preaching in heaven is because Paul says we're going to know. Well, no. We won't need to be preached to. But there's worship going on. There's bowing down. There's singing. This perfect song. And the Apostle Paul says, that's where we've come. That's where we've come. And by a little grace and a little revival, we are blessed to enter into, Elder Mike Montgomery puts it this way, and I like it, a, there is a perpetual worship transpiring in heaven right here and right now. It's perpetual. It's never ending. They don't have to break to go back to work. Or I mean, it's worship. It's a constant, unending worship of God the Father and the Lamb Christ Jesus. Thou art worthy. Oh, I can't wait to sing that song. I can't wait to sing the songs that are sung in heaven and immortal glory. But it's going on. We go to sleep at night. I mean, they're worshiping in heaven. We get up and we go to work, they're worshiping in heaven. That's why we find ourselves envious of those that have gone on. You see, they now are at rest from their labors and their works follow them here. But there's coming a day where I'll be at rest from my labor and my works will follow me. But I'll be in heaven in that never-ending worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and that per perpetual worship service 
It comes down with New Jerusalem out of heaven. And then we rise up from the cares of this life. And we meet uh, where Jesus Christ is in that upper room. We join into that very perpetual worship that's already taking place. Even though ours is for a little while because we're constrained by time. We join in. We're surrounded by the spirits of just men. We're surrounded by the spirits of just men made perfect. We're being watched by an innumerable company of angels. We enter into that general assembly and church of the firstborn. And when it happens, there's not just a little reviving. There's a lot of reviving. How important is the church. That's how important it is that God would bless us to become part of that general assembly while we worship in the here and the now and partake with those that are worshiping in heaven and immortal glory. That's what the church means to Jesus Christ. So I submit to you, that's what the church should mean to us. May he bless and keep you is my prayer.